and we're off. Excellent. Right. Well, I'm very pleased to have uh, Mike Lander from Piscari joining me today. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure. Great to see you, Johnny. Uh, look, I enjoyed our conversation the other week. So, yeah, this should be uh, really interesting. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Now, I know we've got a variety of things that we've kind of uh, discussed previously that we want to cover in actual, yeah. you know, some detail. Um, but from my point of view, I think it's very interesting to, to have you involved in the conversation um, in terms of getting a negotiator's perspective on services procurement. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested to dive into some of these subjects around the kind of wider issues. Um, but before we actually get into it, would you just be able to give uh, a kind of a, a, a bit of a, a pricey of your background and history and what you do now and how you got there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so um, look back deep back in time. I'm an engineer by training. So uh, I like process. I like numbers. I'm very structured, you know, disciplined. Uh, and that kind of carries through in your life. I don't think you can change who you are dramatically as a human being at the core in terms of that kind of those characteristics. And where that got me into was I've been in mainstream consulting. So I was at KPMG for about four years, running large scale change programs. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, and then I ended up buying a consulting company and scaling that up, borrowed seven million pounds of debt in the couple of markets when you could uh, back in the day, just before the Great Recession, uh, the last re recent one. Um, and I've built schools businesses uh, from scratch and sold them. I've done all sorts. So if anyone looked at my LinkedIn profile, you'd go, there's no linear path here at <laughs> I all. I was looking at it earlier. <laughs> I was like, wow, there's some serious, like really interesting variation in what you've done. But exactly. I, it's kind of all got a bit of a central theme, though. It has. Exactly right. And that central theme is I've been involved in kind of consulting. So high end consulting at board level. Um, a lot of work on procurement and negotiation throughout the last kind of 20, 22 years. Um, and what I do now basically is I've taken, so I was a buyer at scale. So I've probably bought, I don't know, now probably 450 million pounds of the stuff, uh, hundreds of deals that I've done in the past. I used to work with private equity backed firms as their procurement director with a colleague of mine. And we'd negotiate contracts on behalf of the uh, portfolio company and their investor, obviously. Um, so a lot of a lot of buy side experience. What I do now is I work with on the sell side to help suppliers, particularly marketing agencies, IT services companies, kind of staffing organizations, uh, RPOs, uh, MSPs uh, that are selling into big brands. I help them think through as a sales team, what's the negotiating plan? How are you going to, you know, what's your strategy? What's your plan? What's the sequence you're going to go through? What are the negotiating variables that you're going to consider? What are your upper limits, your lower limits? You know, where are the challenges going to come from? And get them to think through negotiation as a more strategic component of the whole sales cycle. Um, and I deal with that in you know, groups of like 10, 20, 30 salespeople. Uh, and it's a training in kind of coaching, mentoring uh, program that I run. Do you know what? I, I, think, um, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate um, the structure that you can put around a negotiation. Yeah. Um, I, I, had, I was lucky enough to have some, some really good negotiation training way back in the day. And it's always stood me in good stead, just in, in terms of understanding the structure of the process. Exactly. Because it, because it can go all over the place. But if you, can return, if you can return to some sort of base structure, then yeah, it's, it can be an extremely valuable thing because there's so many variables and exactly. there's, you know, there's sometimes emotion can be introduced into conversations or it can be felt where maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be. And ultimately yeah. it's about doing the best possible business transaction that you can really, isn't it? But in terms of preparation, you know, if you looked at how much value is created at the negotiation, mm. well over half the value is in the preparation. So right. I absolutely know when I was negotiating as a buyer, you know, I'd have done all my analysis, I'd have pulled off the supplier data, the spend data, we'd look at the category data, you know, I'd have formed a view of where this supplier fits within my portfolio, within that category, I'd know what the market rates are, you know, I'd know what the scope looks like, I'd know how the KPIs work. So just in that moment, imagine all the prep I've done. And let's say you rock up and you've been busy, Johnny, because you're a busy bloke, and you rock up and you've done no prep. And you turn up and you have a discussion with me, and we're at the back end of the sales cycle now, remember? So we're now at the point whereby you think you've got a deal with the CMO or the CIO. You think you've got an outline commercial structure that will work. And you think you're coming to me with, I need to get the contracts sorted out. And we need to get the final negotiations done. 
and all of a sudden it starts to unwind really badly for you because I've, I've already prepped, I've got my process, I know what my variables are, I know what my limits are, I've done your research on your company, I know where you fit. And it's, it always used to surprise me that people would walk away from the negotiation going, oh, blimey, that didn't work out very well. And I'm like, it's preparation. <laughs> yeah, and like you say, you can, you can walk into a very one-sided conversation otherwise. And I think one of the, the key things I learned from negotiation, which sometimes today can be seen as a bit of a corny thing, but, but it's just, it's not about one side necessarily winning. It's about coming, getting a successful business relationship that's put in place that works on both sides. But if people don't do the preparation, then A, they're probably not going to get as good a deal as they could do. Yeah. But also they might end up in a situation where it's un unfairly weighted and therefore that can cause friction in the deal later on. But So um, the myth of the win-win deal. I talk about this a lot. People say to me, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a win-win negotiator. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, it's quite interesting. So what, what does that look like normally? And then they talk me through the deal structures and typically the buyer has come off far better than the seller, far better because they want the brand. It's a big enterprise client, they want the brand. And at the end of that kind of that briefing from them, I say, well, so what part of this was you winning? You've won the client, yeah. But I, this is going back in time somewhat, but there was a, in the Northwest of England, which is where I'm from, I used to watch a program every week called Bully Star Prize, which was a, you know, this Jim Bowen on a Jim TV Bowen, program. Yeah, um, Jim Bowen, Bullseye. Bullseye, that's it. Yeah. And he used to say, look what you could have won. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, always, it was always like a caravan or something like that. You could have won a caravan, but you instead you won some steak knives. <laughs> and it's the same thing in the deal. The kind of the winner's curse is that deal was, yeah, most of those deals are not win-win deals because the brand knows the value of the brand and they know that you can use that with other clients. And so you end up with a very one-sided deal. The great deals are these integrative deals where you actually make the pie bigger. And I've seen it done with tech companies and big brands where you start, to, um, you start to build a much bigger value proposition than you first started off with, which is beneficial to the supplier and to the client. And those are truly win-win. And ultimately they're working together on, on, on getting to that point. So it's already forming the base of the relationship. Right. Just to come into uh, an area that you previously um, have had a you know, decent amount of exposure to, which is this workforce landscape. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, when we're looking at things like when we're looking at services procurement, it's a massively valuable um, resource to organizations. Yep. It's part of their wider workforce picture. Um, and it's a huge category of spend. It's very yes. important. Um, you know, we're very passionate about it, particularly from a tech point of view, where we feel it's, you know, it's under supported. And that's what we're the problem we're looking to solve. Yeah. Um, but when you look at that kind of um, that's that wider strategic strategic workforce planning picture. Yeah. Um, there's quite a lot of moving parts. And one of the things that we briefly touched on uh, in our previous conversation was around the tech landscape and how it relates to strategic workforce planning. I know yeah. you've got some kind of viewpoints on this. How do you see that in terms of the way that's laid out and the way that companies can utilize it? Because there's clearly an opportunity for companies to pull all of this information together, which yeah. they need to do if they want to do proper strategic workforce planning. So I'm interested in your view on that wider picture, but also where services procurement fits into that. So uh, when we say services procurement, just so that we're both clear, so can we talk about statement of work? Yeah, let's talk about statement of work. So, so obviously in a broader description, services procurement could include, for example, contingent workforce. Exactly. Um, but in the context, I'm, I'm talking about any service procured under a statement of work. Exactly. Consultancy, professional services, whatever, yeah. So I think, so if you just look at, let, let's take that and then let's come back to the tech piece in a second as well. Okay. Statement of work, I think, given IR35, uh, now and what's happened recently, uh, which was always going to be the case. Um, statement of work is now back in vogue. So all of a sudden, all the recruitment companies are talking about statement of work as well as contingent workforce. And the conversations I've had with quite a lot of recruiters is recruitment firms at a decent scale saying, well, I'm going to, I'll just sell statement of work. It's fine. And I say, let's just unpick that as a buyer. So as a buyer, I'm now buying, you know, if you're buying contingent work, you're basically buying activity. It's more sophisticated, but you're buying a worker. You want, to, you want someone to fill a role as a contractor for a period of time. And the client manages that contractor. Yep. And the you job of the, materials. Exactly, it, it's TNM. And the job of the recruitment company or the MSP is to find high quality resources. And it works really well. 
But when I come to buy statement of work or services, I'm buying an output or an outcome. That's completely different because I'm asking you now as an organization, whoever's providing it, to take on some risk. Because if you fail to deliver the output, well, I'm gonna claw back part of your fee. If you fail to hit the outcomes, I'll claw back part of your fee. If anything goes wrong from a governance point of view, I'm gonna claw back part of your fee. I want the ability to um, terminate you if you fail to deliver against certain uh, requirements. That's very different than selling a contingent worker. And I think there are, I mean, agencies know this, they understand the concept, but operationalizing that and understanding the risk and how you manage statement of work is completely different. So if an agency came to me, who's a contingent workforce agency said, oh, we've now got a, an SOW capability. I'd listen to them, but given that I've been in consulting for 25 years, I know a bit about buying outcomes and buying outputs. So they're going to have a hell of a job convincing me that they've got program managers and program directors that can run a governance model that can deliver for my internal stakeholders that have got the systems in place that allow me to track what's going on um, rather than just being a recruiter. Because it's a completely different game. Totally think- different game. I, I, sorry to cut across it. I was going to yeah. say... Um, so when it comes to like, you know, using systems, obviously we're having, that's what we do. Uh, you know, we're a system for managing the full kind of statement of work lifecycle for any, any of that type of services procurement delivery. Yep. But when we talk to recruiters, what we see is we tend to see two different models with this. So we'll see, um, well, actually three different models. One is where you've got a company that's got X million spend and they just want to outsource the problem to a, a neutral vendor to provide a fully managed service yep. around that whole spend category a bit like they do with contingent workforce. Yep. The second scenario is where you've got a recruitment intermediary that's dealing with more, I wouldn't say spot business, but maybe smaller clients or pocket to business. For example, in relation to IR35, where they say, we were getting this work done with contractors. Yeah. They're all inside IR35. Therefore, we need to outsource this work to a supplier and get it done under a statement of work. Um, and in, that, in those cases, it's still the supplier that's taking on the liability for the work. But in, in terms of what you're describing, that I would class that as it's almost like project services, really it consulting is. services, where they're taking the liability for the actual delivery. And, it, and you're right, it's a very, very different game. All the whole SOW piece is a very different game. And I think when we get into that, you know, buying services, statement of work, um, if there's a if, if there's an agency in the middle, and again, so from a risk point of view, as a buyer, you know, what do I look at? I'd say take even some relatively simple project work that needs to be done. If there's an agency sat there and at you know, me as a brand pays the agency and then agency is paying the statement of work or the consultancy provider. In that moment, if the agency fails and I've paid the agency and the consultancy team haven't been paid, now what happens? Because the consultancy team will hold back deliverables until payment, but I've already paid because the agency's failed. So I think the model, the commercial model that's going to be adopted as well around, well, if there's a statement of work uh, agency that's basically saying, yes, I can take this work on, or we have a team that can take it on, but it's a third party, you get into this kind of like, well, do we, do we pay the agency margin only for securing the resource team? And then we have a contract relationship with the resource team and pay the agency a margin only fee, which is a finder's fee. Because as a buyer, I'd feel much happier talking to the people doing the work and having a contract with them than I would a, an agency that I, I, I don't know or can't manage the risk of financially. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make. And, and I think it's all tied up with the, the nuances of the contract process and the engagement structure. Exactly. Um, I mean, we've definitely seen um, some players within the market doing this at a really high level, a really high quality level where they brought in specific expertise, yes. people with a procurement background, people with program management, PMO background. Exactly. Um, so whether they're offering, uh, you know, project services or, or just kind of managing SOW, yep. um, there's some people that are doing a really, really good job of this. They're very switched on. And it's exactly. all about them just taking the problem away for the, from the customer. But I agree, there's, there's definitely some education in some areas of the market where people might look at it as a, an easy opportunity they've still got to do it right yeah. um and it's there's um you know it's a large and important amount of spend that needs to be managed um but where the liability sits and and yeah. you know where the contact sits is quite nuanced and um, how's it going to work with the big consulting firms i mean i know having been ex kpmg you know if you look at big brands 
and you look at a movement from you know contingent workforce into statement to work i mean contingent workforce is still there and it's still thriving of course. it's just that you know that yeah the tax regime now has changed but companies will still use uh, workers under a, under a, uh, a contingent workforce regime, but where they're moving chunks of their work to statement of work, um, you know, again, you just kind of go back to this uh, risk and um, uh, risk and brand, I would say. Some of the work you're never going to shift from McKinsey, PwC, Cooper, you know, um, whoever it might be, because certain projects you're never going to give to an agency that's got a statement to work capability, no matter how good it is. And so what I saw inside some of the big banks that I used to work with uh, when we looked at services procurement was there was a very definite differentiation between board level services that were bought from the big six and other services that were done within functions like IT, where that could be done under statement of work uh, through a technology platform. And that differentiation is not gonna go away. No, I mean, the way that they buy is very different in the sense that those those yeah. top-level consultancies, they're just going straight into the C-suite. I mean, Correct. procurement might even have very little involvement in that in that yeah. whole process. It almost gets put upon them in some cases. Yeah. Um, and I think I do think there's, there's a large amount of room for improvement and kind of transformation in that area yeah. where there can be increased visibility of what the big, big consultancies are doing. And that should be of benefit to the big consultancies because they should be doing a really good job. Exactly. Um, but I think also there's there's opportunities for organizations where they're using big firms, but there's almost like a bit of a blanket approach to it, yeah. where they could be using big firms in core areas where those big firms are the right people and the best people for the job, but it could just be natural spillover into other areas where they're then missing out on really innovative, agile, maybe smaller yeah. suppliers exactly. that could do a fantastic job, but they almost kind of can, cannot be, uh, don't, don't get a, a fair crack of the whip as it were. That's um, right. But, but I think also it's about visibility of the supply chain and visibility on the spend. Visibility of the spend. Now that's a key area. Absolutely. You talk about tech platforms. The biggest problem that I saw within large, huge global organizations around what was then just classed as consultancy, Let, let's park SOW as a term, but just consultancy work that wasn't contingent work, is how the hell do you find out is it good value for money? Because you've got this complexity of, we're delivering an output normally, and that's got a scope attached to it, and it's got a price. And then there's some value component that the buyer's got in their mind that will be created off the back of this piece of work. Well, if you've got thousands of these contracts inside an organization, how as a procurement person do I cross compare to see if we're getting good value for money? Because all of the statement of work at the back in the schedule, they're all different. It's really hard to work out in a typical category where I can get down to some kind of unit price, you know, whereas see contingent workforce was great in many ways because the unit price was worker rate. So I could work out what the worker pay rate was. I could go across an entire organization. I could pull that data. I could do comparisons by department, by worker type, by category. And I could try to work out where maybe there's some more value to be created. Very difficult in consultancy based work to find out where's, am I overspending? Really hard to tell. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is basically our kind of reason for existence in the sense right. that you have, you have to capture the process. So unless you capture the process, the full source to pay process at yep. a granular level, you, you're never gonna have that data. Now it's still complex because it's not just a question of buying, um, you know, 50, 50 You're not buying widgets. widgets. No. Not buying the uh, fabled red widgets. Um, you're not buying an hourly rate, um, but you can still make comparisons if you get that data. But the other thing to consider is projects are different. Everything, everything's always different. Yeah. I think companies make the mistake of trying to take a contingent workforce viewpoint or staff or viewpoint of consulting in a lot of Absolutely. Where they'll go, oh, well, the day rate with these guys is cheaper than the day rate yeah. with those guys. <laughs> but 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 consultancy A might take twice the amount of time and do a rubbish it's nonsense. job. So <laughs> it's if, nonsense. If you, if you capture the process... Yes, that's that's the problem to solve. Number one. And that is where the market is way behind, for example, contingent workforce. And when you um, say capture the process, so the source to pay process, which we'd both recognize, are you talking about the entire from when I've got a requirement in my hand right through to the offboarding at the end of the consulting project? Is it that whole end to end process? 
It is, yes. It's the absolute end-to-end price. It actually goes beyond that into this kind of supplier performance scenario. Um, However, probably the most critical area is actually capturing the delivery phase. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, absolutely, what what will happen a lot of the time that we see all the time is um, a statement of work is agreed and there's a contract which may or may not have milestones, which may or may not have changed, which which probably haven't been measured, but just basically going to be stuck in a shared file somewhere. Exactly. Uh, and if procurement ever want to go back and analyze it, they're going to literally have to dig out all of these documents. I remember it well. Absolutely. Find the milestones. We pull manually. out scanned copies of the signed contract. It wasn't even like uh, it hadn't been um, uh, turned into a, a text readable document. We'd literally yeah. get the documents out and go, I can barely read this. It's been scanned. And you'd yeah. be searching through the deliverables going, what the hell was this about? And did it get delivered? Where's the governance process that says, this is what we agreed. Here are the milestone dates. Here's the reports off the back of the milestones, which came out of the project governance group saying, what did they achieve at this milestone? What was left outstanding? What was the the variation? I mean, how do you do variation control in this? Because projects always get varied. Exactly. So, so if you're if you're cap- ideally you want to capture the whole process. Yeah. Uh, and you know, from our point of view, it might be that a PO starts in a central um, procurement system, uh, you know, source to procure to pay system. Yeah. Uh, the, the PO comes to us, but then the requirement is in uh, is in Zivio, and that that follows through the whole process. So when you're actually defining milestones within a system and capturing yeah. that, that feeds into the statement of work. So you already know what the milestones are. Feeds feeds into the statement of work. Feeds into the contract process. But then, most importantly, it feeds into the delivery process. Yes. So you have your milestones systemized. You can see, are they delivered on time to budget? To, and you can also see how many change requests, what's the variation in scope. Exactly. And, and when you get this information and it flows through and you combine it with the qualitative data, yes. you've got all your quantitative signals and your qualitative data, did they go do a good job? What do we want to measure them on from a qualitative point of view? It yeah. might be sustainability, um, you know, innovation, whatever it is. Once, once an organization has defined that, they've got their qualitative and quantitative measures, which can give a combined overall understanding of how well that supplier did. Yeah. Um, and you can look at, you know, there's so many useful things you can look at, like, okay, across our supply base for this type of project, what's the average cost overrun? How successful yeah. are suppliers in their bids? You know, how often do people just have massive scope changes where they quote quite cheaply and it ends up being really expensive? Correct. Et cetera, et cetera. Or, or where milestones might look great, but the qualitative score is terrible. Yeah. But so, so if you capture the process then you have the data, then you have the power to start making these strategic type decisions yeah. and move away from, you know, trying to compare hourly rates or, um, and you can make meaningful supplier to supplier comparisons, yeah. even if the types of projects they've worked on have been slightly different because you're comparing the same metrics. I mean, you know um, that I, um, I do quite a lot of work in the agency world, marketing agencies. Uh, so not right. recruitment agencies, marketing agencies. Okay. Very similar problem yeah. is that I'll help a marketing agency uh, negotiate a contract with a supplier based off the back of an RFP. Every RFP that I see from procurement is you've got to like put in your hourly rates. So what's, what are the grades of people? Um, how many hours are they going to work on the project? What's the hourly rate? And that can L all adds up to a number at the bottom. And you have to comply or else you're out of the game. But we normally would comply and not comply because we'd say, you're not buying hours. And don't try and negotiate the price down by chipping away at the hours of the director, the manager, the creative person, the SEO person, you know, and changing the hourly rate in line with your rate. It doesn't work that way. You're, you're looking for a business result. You can't get a business result by buying activity. And it's a really important point is that, and again, a lot of marketing procurement people and consultancy procurement people your natural tendency is, what? how do I compare? I'll go to rate card, because I understand rate cards and how many days they're going to do on it. And it's just, a, we all know it's a bad way to buy because that does not equate to value at all. Yeah, and, and I think it's, you know, it depends what you're buying and it depends what, what uh, if, you're, if it's talking about a service, it's what's the best way to get that done. So I35 in some ways by kind of clarifying the picture Although some would say muddying the waters in it's particularly it's quite a grey area piece yes. of legislation, but but clarifying the picture around saying if you want to get a piece of work done, you can either use your perm employees yep. or you can use contractors and temps if it's compliant, um, and you have to do the right process, or you can outsource it. 
and yeah. on a deliverables basis. And so if it makes sense to outsource it on a deliverables basis, which it won't all of the time, but where it does, then that puts an onus of responsibility on the company to define what it is they need to get done. Exactly. But then they've got then they've got the security of knowing that they're going to pay X to get Y. And yeah. they're happy with that and they've justified that. And I think it creates a very pragmatic approach within organizations where they're they're having to really think about what do I need to do? Because if you've got if you've got people just sitting there, however they're working on a time materials basis, it's much easier to just let it run. Absolutely. Whereas if you if you've got a supplier, you're taking holding them to, to account on a specific deliverable. It's a totally more pragmatic way to do it. And it ties not- into what's the business strategy, yeah. which comes back to this point about strategic workforce planning. Um which is, is crucial because I think a lot of organizations, their problem stems from the fact they haven't got their overall strategy clearly communicated in terms of spreading that out to the business to say, this is the overall strategy, this is where we're going. Yep. These are the things we need to do to get there. And this is how we're going to do these things. And therefore, please add your value to that. Exactly. So, so <laughs> another area, I don't know if you cover this or not, but I'm starting to see in this digital transformation landscape, because we've accelerated 10 years of development into a year, effectively, in the last 12 months, everyone's going digital. So there are loads of digital transformation projects going on. Anyone that's in that kind of digital transformation space is really busy. People that will build e-commerce engines, the back end, the front end, the UX, all of the, um, the kind of uh, the marketing uh, assets behind it, et cetera, that, that's a really busy landscape. But they're often, or they're, be, they're often, as I see, uh, contracted on an agile basis. Yeah. Now, as a procurement person, I just cringe agile. Because I'm saying, you're saying to me, like, what we're going to do, Mike, is we're going to run like heck for like six weeks. It's going to cost you this. And when we get there, we'll find out what we're going to do next. I'm like, no, <laughs> no. I'm about to write you an open checkbook. I can't do that. I, I can't, it's, it, it's against all of the kind of like everything in my nature to say, we don't know what's coming after the six weeks, but we know what six weeks looks like. When we get to six weeks, we'll redo it. And I say, well, but if I don't like your plan for the next six weeks, what happens? So you can stop. I'm like, well, I can't, can I? Because you've drawn me in and it's now so complex. I can't switch. And that's a nightmare for a, for a buyer. The only experience of Agile? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a compromise because there are certain situations where it's absolutely the required method to deliver what it is. If it's a particularly if it's an extremely complex and yes. maybe groundbreaking technical development, exactly. for example. So <clears throat> we see sometimes people within the system, our milestones are quite flexible. So they might actually, as a proxy for milestones, they might be using sprints within an agile methodology. Yes. Um, which which requires an overall project scope, but then you know, the specific deliverables or the specific sprints to be defined on an ongoing basis. And with a cap, um, presumably, on the spend, <clears throat> at some point, someone's got to say, it's, it's complex, it's unknown, but we're going to cap this spend at half a million. We can't go over half a million. Yeah, I mean, typically, you'd, you'd have some overall parameters around it as to what the expectations are of the, 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 the kind yeah. of overall cost of the entire project. But it's sometimes it's just like the shape and stages and steps of that project. They have to flex. They must. They have to flex because there are dependencies that come in at each different stage. So I think it's a really, really interesting point. I think it's not something that you can say, oh, we can't do it like that. It's something that, you know, organizations need to find the best way to do it. But again, if you're clearly tracking it and you're clearly monitoring it on a real time basis, then you have the best possible opportunity of getting the right result and not ending up in a sticky situation where you've been kind of getting led along, led along, led along, um, because you can see what's happening in real time. You can see where where you are against projected yeah. outcomes and 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 you know uh, what the overall um, kind of project parameters are looking I like. I mean, good old kind of like you know you can track like, as we used to do many many years ago on projects is that you you draw the expected spend profile and then you track the actual and if you start to see the actual just heading over the expected and it keeps going, and it keeps going like that, you're like, well, hang on a minute. This isn't going to get back inside the envelope unless we do something different. So at least you can start to see, yeah, okay, you know, things have changed. Do we reset the target, or do we need to bring something else back in line? So I think systems would be really helpful, and dashboarding to allow executives who aren't technical, and who aren't procurement people, to understand where's this project going that's on an agile basis, Where's the spend going? 
And to your point, you know, what's being delivered? What have we found out? What have we discovered along the way? Yeah, and, and we typically, if, you, if you're capturing all the information at a granular level, then it just builds up from the bottom. So if you're capturing everything at a milestone level or a sprint level, then yeah. you can build it up into project level, you can build it up into program level, and you can get overall idea of exactly what's going on. Yes. But um, the only way you can do that effectively is to, to, to systemize it. Yes. Um, but as I say, you know, there needs to be that flexibility for organizations to work in that manner. You know, you can't guarantee that everyone is going to have exactly the same process where there's a one size fits all type no. of milestone. Because um, it goes so, to the principle so, of agile. The whole point of agile is it has to be flexible. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the definition of a milestone could be, you know, there, there are nuances within industry. Yeah. Um, the, and and there are nuances within the type of project within that. So, but you need a flexible way of tracking. Ultimately, with a statement of work, you're saying, "I'll pay you X to yeah. deliver Y." Exactly. You need to define what Y is, and you need to track it along the way. Yeah. Um, so, as long as you're doing that, then that that provides that visibility. Um, and as I say, when we're talking about things like the big consultancies and small suppliers getting a fair crack of the whip, you know, it should be something that benefits vendors as well. I mean, I can see sense. the pushback now. I can imagine going back in time to my days at KPMG or other big consultancies with my partner going to me, this doesn't bode well for us. <laughs> this, we don't want to be on this system. It's going to be a nightmare because it goes against the grain because it's back to, we're going to get compared to all sorts of different consultancies and we're going to be in discussions with people about, is this value for money? And are you experts in this area? And I think it's a good thing, Johnny. But I can see the big consultancy firms resisting getting onto the platforms. Yeah, and you know what? That's a, that's a challenge for those organisations to deal with uh, appropriately. Yeah. The, the the actual uh, end client organisations because they want their value. And exactly, COVID has really uh, has really emphasised the point that you know companies need to know what they're getting for their money. They can't yeah. afford to just be spending money and not really know what they're getting for it and just feel comfortable because there's a big name doing it. Um, it's all about value. So they need to measure value, need to understand it. And ultimately, if these trusted big, big name uh, consultancy partners are doing a great job, they should be recognized for it and they should be rewarded for it. Exactly. Whereas, you know, half of the time they might be getting, you know, a bad, uh, bad feedback from the company when they're actually doing a great job. And there are issues within how the company's operating that, or the company's not implementing what they're suggesting, for example. And internal um, political battles. I mean, as you get to that rarefied atmosphere, of exec board level for a global fortune, you know, 500, all sorts of things happen where it's not in the interest of a particular stakeholder to say that a consultancy project's gone well because it affects their turf. So all of that, I think having, having rich data that's transparent and unambiguous is a help. Yeah, and it's it's definitely it's it's very much buyer driven, but ultimately it should help strengthen relationships where relationships are healthy. Um, but also it gets away from this scenario of businesses just saying you know, they can't do it anymore. They can't just say, "What did we spend last year? Two hundred million. Well, it's to budget. Great. You yeah. know, that that and therefore the CFO says, "Oh, we're at hard times. We've got to chop twenty percent off that next year." That that just doesn't stack up because a just being to budget isn't good enough because you might be wasting money and B cutting your budget might actually be a very detrimental thing to do because yeah. the consulting work or the supplier that's delivering some services for you might be significantly contributing to the top line or bottom line. Um, you need to recognize that you need to understand it, but um, COVID has played a big part in pushing the statement of work agenda, not just in terms of overall cost control and people understanding what they're getting for their money, but also just this kind of acceptance of, of more outsourcing and, and even just like, with lots more people working remotely, there's just a general workforce shift towards deliverables, deliverable outcomes, whether you Absolutely. see that in the gig economy Absolutely. or in the kind of larger transactions. I mean, something else that'll be kind of interesting your view on uh, in that kind of technology environment is the joining together of data. So for example, right. let me give you a scenario. Um, big organization, big corporate, um, they've got a lot of work that he's doing and the, the value of that works a million pounds. Whether it's done through a statement to work, consultancy project or a contingent worker is up to the budget holder. And what we used to, what I have seen in the past happen is if there's a headcount freeze on, then it's like, well, okay, I'll do it on contingent. 
But if there's a freeze around, if there's IR35 issues, then they say, well, okay, then I'll stick it onto consultancy. And then you go, is it capitalized or is it OPEX? Or is it CAPEX or OPEX? It's like, well, what's best for us at the moment? Bringing all that together so that the, the exec team have a view of what are we spending on consultancy? What are we spending on contingent workforce? You know, what are we spending on CAPEX versus OPEX within those categories? So joining together what was the old VMS systems with these kind of uh, statement to work systems, I think that's going to be interesting about is there a common key? Can you look across between both systems? Don't know. Yeah, I mean, in terms of centralization of data and, and centralization of the process, um, you know, buying something under a statement of work is very different to buying something, buying contingent workers. Exactly. The, the contingent workforce technical problem is very well solved by the big VMS providers. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a solved problem. Um, with statement of work, it's more of an emerging solution with people like ourselves, but, it's, but it is separate. Like you wouldn't necessarily start a statement of work requirement in a vendor management system. No, I mean, you can. But, Some of them, I think, did have SOW modules. But to your point, Johnny, they, they came from a contingent workforce world and bolted on SOW. And that's very different. Yeah, I mean, we, we see the two things as, extre as extremely different. And I think, yeah. you know, we're, we're a specialist. So if you're very focused in one area, you can absolutely de devote all of your product development and everything about the experience to make that work as best as possible. So we take very much the kind of best of breed approach to just purely services delivered under a statement of work. But with regards to kind of centralizing the process, you can't, we see some people kind of going a level above that and saying initially, and this is where it ties into strategic workforce planning and yep. that overall kind of approach to what's the best way to get the work done, where it's a question of saying, here's the piece of work, this is what it looks like, and the organization needs either some advice from like a recruitment yeah. managed service provider, workforce solutions provider, or internally to have systems set up or um, channels set up to say, this is what I need to do, this is what it looks like, what's the best way for me to get that done? Exactly. Well, that looks like it's best to be a permanent employee go and stick it into Workday, or it's a, it's a yeah. contingent worker, stick it in the VMS, or it's an SOW, punch it out to the SOW tech. And in but, fact, but what we wanted was, we used to have the, the concept, I don't know if it's happened, of some kind of machine learning assisted uh, decision support tool, where a, a budget holder went through a decision support tool to go, is this best for stem to work, or is it best for contingent, or is it best for hiring? And it asks you a series of questions and, and you go through this kind of like exercise because it made it much more rational. It made it much more criteria based. Uh, and I can see, yeah, we talked earlier about the, the different systems that are around and, and you know, what happens at the, the level up. I think that kind of glue, that decision support glue that says, well, which is the best route to go down? I think, again, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it can be done pretty simply. Um, yeah. And um, you, you know, if you start from a simple point, you can always add layer on complexity exactly. to, to it. But I think if you look at it, however that decision is made, whether that is made within um, internal procurement criteria that just spell out, if it looks like this, go over here. If it looks like that, go over yeah. there. Or whether it's coming from a triage service that might be provided by yeah. a workforce solutions provider as part exactly. of that process. Yeah. Um, where they might do other stuff as well, like help them write a good SOW, or if it's contingent, help them write a good yeah. job spec, et cetera. Like a global MSP. If you've got a global MSP, then they will have that kind of like decision support office. Requests go in, it gets triaged, and it gets sent out through the right route. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And then when you look at the other end of it, in terms of the data, um, you know, we integrate with systems like Power BI, Tableau, SciSense, yeah. things like that, where people might just say, well, actually, we do most of our data crunching in a, in a BI tool. Exactly. Um, so, so what, for example, you know, the VMS might have their own internal dashboards and then push the data out. We have our internal dashboards, just people yep. see on real time and, and assess stuff and then push the, push the data out as well. So they can do the real data crunching in a centralized um, exactly data right. warehouse. And, and I think that's where, I mean, it's, it's very interesting when you start talking about things like comparing the value of, or the return investment of outsourcing something versus getting permanent employees to do it. Yeah. Because I, I personally think that, the value thing is like the, it's the ultimate. Um, that, that is a little bit of a way off. People have got to capture the process, understand the data, get more of an idea of return from the suppliers that they're using and comparative um, quality and what they're actually getting for their money. Then the value conversation ties into all of that data, that quantitative data plus the qualitative input onto are they doing a good job or not? Yeah. And, it, and it kind of feeds back into the overall strategy of the business. But 
but fundamentally measuring what a perm person is delivering against a consultancy is very difficult, but, but they're Absolutely. working in different ways. <clears throat> I think where the organization has clearly made a decision that this is best to be done in, in this manner, you need to be able to have comparative value within that category, yeah. as you do with all categories. And then that's where some clever stuff needs to happen at the strategic workforce planning level where, but, but if you've got data, then you can start to do this. I'm exactly. not saying it's easy, but if you've got data, you can start really picking it apart. Yeah. And that strategic work, workforce planning piece. And there's, yeah, the, there, are, there are vendors out there that provide that kind of those, those tools at a kind of macro level um, is, you know, you are looking for like, well, in this quarter, in this year, given that this year is full of uncertainty for an awful lot of organizations, then you obviously want to reduce your commitments you want to make sure that you've got flexibility. So taking on a lot more headcount quickly may not suit the organization. So I'm now gonna have a blend of some contractors. I'm gonna have a bit more headcount in certain positions and I'm gonna do more consultancy, fixed price project-based work. You can start to adapt it as the economic environment and your own environment changes. And that I think is where, you know, then you can start to work out where do I deploy my, um, my spend best given the environment within, within which I'm in and the risk I'm prepared to take. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the thing I love about it is it, it, it forces people to think about it. Yeah. It forces the organization to think about how they're deploying their resources, exactly what they're getting for it. It forces individuals at, uh, you know, uh, an individual stakeholder department, buying manager level to think about actually what is it I need to get done? Yeah. And how well, how well am I doing that? And are we actually achieving towards the goals we need to? Um, but the other thing is about it is exactly as you just said, if they've then got these channels set up effectively, so if you've got an effective perm channel and a hiring yeah. channel and you've got an effective contingent workforce supply chain and you've got an effective SOW delivery channel, then you have all the flexibility you need. And yeah. If you've got the data, then you can start pointing things in different directions. We're really struggling getting these sorts of projects done in this method. Let's push it over here and try that. What sort of value we're getting out of this um, this particular engagement model? Exactly. Okay. Well, that's mm -hmm. that's looking really good. So, yeah, absolutely. And and the as you said about this increase in development, um, I remember speaking to um, one of the senior guys at Staffing Industry Analysts at the beginning of the whole oh, yeah. COVID thing. That's um, very good. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a really interesting conversation where they were saying um, the the adoption of technology is going to massively accelerate in this process, Johnny. Yeah. You just wait and see. And you know, uh, they compared it to. The, uh, the Great Recession, the kind of two credit crunch leading into the recession yeah. with the adoption of vendor management systems, that that just accelerated that whole process. And I think really the thing that's been accelerated out of this is probably statement of work and um, kind of outcome-based remote working, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And the accountability, transparency, you know, data-driven, you know, that's what all organizations now are looking for. And I see it again in, in parallel worlds, marketing agency world, yeah, unsurprisingly, a lot of agencies are saying, wow, all of my clients are suddenly asking for performance-related commercial models. And I'm like, well, why are you surprised? You know, what they're looking for is accountability. You'll do what you say you'll do. You know, if you outperform, we're prepared to bonus you on that, but you have to outperform. So much more business results focused rather than, you know, a blend of creative creativity, business results and some of the unknown. So I think it's I think it's a pattern across all buying aspects is more accountability. We need results. We need to demonstrate value for money. Um, the corporate balance sheet has been depleted because we've been using that to shore up our businesses. Um, we're gonna we're gonna recapitalize our balance sheet, but we're gonna do it in a way that we get value for money. I think it's gonna be a tough time by the way for sellers. I think they're I'm, I've just written an article in the drum which I'm releasing in the next couple of weeks about, in fact, I've called it the winner's curse. Yeah, beware the winner's curse. Let's not repeat what happened in 2007, 2008, 2009. 2009, we came out of the recession, uh, although slowly. And a lot of the services sector, their rates got trashed. Yeah. You know, their rates got absolutely destroyed by like 30%. And the market never really came back for quite a long time. And if we're not careful, the same thing will happen again. And then in two or three years time, we'll see a whole bunch of failures of services companies because there was no margin. 
Yeah, a precedent gets set, doesn't it? It's a little bit like the fact that the price of buying a uh, dog from a breeder during COVID has gone up by <laughs> by a factor of three, and it it probably won't come down for ages. It won't um, come down but, for ages. That's right. No, it's set a precedent. So, just kind of coming looping this back now. Um, yeah. I, I think you know you and I could could definitely discuss these sorts of topics all day. But <laughs> for some looping, time, yes, exactly. <laughs> looping it back to the negotiation angle. Yes. As we move to a, um, a world where deliverable outcomes are more common, more accepted, more analysed, um, they have their place. They're not the be all and end all, but they're, yep. they're a more kind of recognised part of the service delivery mix. What do you think the implications are from a negotiation point of view, both on the buyer and the seller angle with that? So I think if I look at it from the seller angle, uh, first of all, I think, you know, my advice to sellers who are going through that um, uh, more accountability, you know, much more focused on outputs and outcomes is, you know, when you're negotiating the contract, I just did a survey on LinkedIn. In fact, I said, I asked a question, what's most important to you? Discounting on the, so in the negotiation, you know, is it more important that you don't discount too heavily is it more important you get less than 30 that you get payment turns better than 30 days is it more important you get long-term contracts or is it more important that you can hit the kpis a majority of people are saying the kpis are really important because if you set the bar too high we're never going to perform to the expected level and it's going to cost us more money mm. i think as a negotiator if i'm looking at all my negotiation variables and those are just four what i'd be doing as a seller is going We've got to nail the scope down really tightly. We've got to agree what, what constitutes a variation to contract. Because if you don't define what determines a variation, the slow dripping tap of could you just yeah. means that you'll never make any money and you'll fail to deliver against expectations. And then thirdly, when you're defining the SLAs, what goes into that SLA? You know, I've seen them where there's been 30 KPIs it's impossible to manage, impossible. You know, five good, strong KPIs with reasonable targets that you've got to hit. And then what's the outperform and the underperform thresholds? Thinking those through carefully. And when you do that, any supplier, no matter what sector you're in, bring in the delivery manager at the time you're negotiating those KPIs because they're going to have to hold them and deliver to them. Too often I see as a seller, a salesperson, negotiates the KPIs, it then gets signed off and handed to delivery and delivery go, well, I, I, I can't achieve this. And sales go, well, but that's what I could get over the line. That's what they wanted. So I think as a negotiation preparation, sit down, think it through, think through the variables, think through those aspects of the contract I just talked about and propose something to your buyer. So in anchoring terms, I'd go in strong with an anchor, first of all, and I'd set the level against all those negotiating variables. And then I'd move them around like you would a mixing desk. So if the buyer wants a bit more off the price, well, then we're going to have to change the scope or change the KPIs or change the payment terms. And that's a negotiation where it's a more evolved, much more considered negotiation. Yeah, and I think um, it's... You know, with the right preparation, sellers are going to be able to see when a deal is not going to be worth them doing. Correct. And 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 people have to be conscious of the fact that some deal, not all business is good business. And the confidence to walk away. Yeah. The confidence to say this isn't for us, because what I think sellers often, and I've been there as a salesperson, you get nervous of losing the deal. Yeah. But the reality is, I mean, as a buyer's going down that track. You know, there is a bit of a power shift goes on is that if I really do want you to do this piece of work and we've spent some time on it, I don't want the deal to fall apart. No. So saying no is fine as long as you've got justification and we'll find a way around it. I'm not just going to walk away. So again, the supplier's got to know it's like, no, we've, we've got red lines and you've just crossed one. We can't do that. It won't work for us. And here's why. And if ultimately you get a very aggressive buyer, just have the strength to walk away and say, it's not for us. You know, we've got other deals we want to do instead that are better for us as an organization. We don't think we'll be able to deliver against your expectations. We're going to walk away. And, and so effectively working to very clear outcomes and including that and making sure the scope is very clear um, 
it should in theory that should allow for a better outcome on both sides Definitely. but it has to be it has to be dealt with properly with preparation and structure and yeah. it, it it can't be woolly of course there's always going to be certain unknowns but within reason yeah. I, I think as a buyer from my point of view as, as a, sorry as a buyer if if someone comes to me and they've really thought it through and they've got reasons why something's going to impinge the delivery of what I want to get done. I'm going to take that very seriously. I'm going to have a lot of credibility. They're going to exactly. gain a lot of credibility in my mind. What about, so, so when you're looking at this shift towards more structured outcome-based delivery, um, and if, if procurement have got more visibility of services that they're procuring under a statement of work, how do you see that negotiation from that buyer angle? So from the buyer, I mean, the system is an enabler. So I think it's going to empower me. Uh, one of the things that often uh, I think people, they don't forget but they, um, they overlook in the negotiation is when the contract's done, the negotiation's not over. Because what happens is I should be doing QBRs. Mm. So on a big contract, I'd expect to do a quarterly business review with the supplier, with the budget holder and me and going through what's happened and what happens next. Because I set the KPIs with the supplier during the contracting stage. But a quarter into delivery, I need a system that tells me whether it's on track or not. And if, it's, if it fails on one of the KPIs in one of the quarterly reviews, it's visible to me. I can see it coming. And then I can start to talk to the vendor about budget holder. We're going to have a separate conversation now. This is about contractually. You've not done what you said you'd do. You can miss the one KPI for one quarter. But if you, hit it, if you miss it again the next quarter there'll be a service credit or there'll be a change in the uh, payment structure or there'll be a rebate. So I think it really empowers me as a buyer to be much more structured. It makes me more efficient. And it also, as long as the vendor knows that's what's gonna happen, it makes the vendor much sharper. Because if, if, if it's real-time reporting, you should be able to see it coming. Whereas I see a lot of QBRs, you get there, the vendor turns up and goes, ta-da, here's what we did. And I go, that's not what I've got. My report says this, and yours says that. Who do I, who do I believe now? Whereas if you've got one, one, um, one view of the truth, a golden source, as I used to call it, you're in much better shape. Huge opportunities for companies here, I think. Um, you know, like you say, digital transformation happening at a very rapid pace. The whole market has changed around us. And we'll continue to do so over the next, you know, yep. uh, on a global level, but also on this macro level where you've got things like R35 in the UK, Brexit yep. affecting the UK. You know, let's face it, regulations around uh, what who's an employee versus self-employed is going to come in in the US, in places like Germany, the Netherlands. Exactly. Um, it, we, we're expecting that them to kind of follow suit. So I think that's going to sharpen up this picture globally. Yep. But I think it's going to be a really interesting time. And yes. um yeah, the ability to track value and, and understand your extended workforce fully is just going yes. to become a more and more important part of it. And, and also with the advances in technology, it's becoming a more, it's, it's a more possible scenario for people to get to rather than something that people just talk about and never actually really get anywhere near. Exactly right. Yep, completely agree. Excellent stuff. Well, listen, I thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Pleasure. Very interesting to, to go through these points with you. As I said before, you know, I could, there's so many other questions I've got for you. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll have to do a round two at some point. Do a round two. Yeah. yeah see what we'll the audience says, that. see what questions they've got, and we'll do a round two. Excellent stuff. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time. Great to speak with you, and I hope we catch up with you soon. Great. Thanks, Johnny. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Mike.